0: Hello, my friend, and welcome to NUMA. I am, and shall always be, your faithful friend and host, Daniel Finneran. Thank you so very much for joining me. In this installment of Fall Asleep with Me, I'll be reading to you, dear friend and listener, George Eliot's masterpiece, Middlemarch, above which I personally rank. No other English novel. This fabulous book, to which we'll dedicate the next half hour or so, is sure to put you at ease. Tomorrow morning, when you wake, fully rested and restored of life, I entreat you, dear listener, to subscribe to this channel and to share it with friends. Now, I ask that you begin to settle your mind. Turn down the brightness of your screen. Close your eyes. Concentrate on two things, your breath and the sound of my voice reading you this story. Chapter 82 My grief lies onward and my joy behind. Shakespeare Sonnets Exiles notoriously feed much on hopes, and are unlikely to stay in banishment unless they are obliged. When Will Ladislaw exiled himself from Middlemarch, he had placed no stronger obstacle to his return than his own resolve. Which was by no means an iron barrier, but simply a state of mind liable to melt into a minuet with other states of mind and to find itself bowing, smiling, and giving place with polite. Facility. As the months went on, it had seemed more and more difficult to him to say why he should not run down to Middlemarch merely for the sake of hearing something about Dorothy and if on such a flying visit he should chance by some strange coincidence to meet with her. There was no reason for him to be ashamed of having taken an innocent journey which he had beforehand supposed that he should not take. Since he was hopelessly divided from her, he might surely venture into her neighborhood. And as to the suspicious friends who kept a dragon watch over her, their opinions seemed less and less important with time and change of air. And there had come a reason quite irrespective of Dorothy, which seemed to make a journey to Middlemarch a sort of philanthropic duty. Will had given a disinterested attention to an intended settlement on a new plan in the Far West. And the need for funds in order to carry out a good design had set him on debating with himself whether it would not be a laudable use to make of his claim on Bulstrode to urge the Application of that money which had been offered to himself as a means of carrying out a scheme likely to be largely beneficial. The question seemed a very dubious one to Will and his repugnance to again entering into any relation with the banker might have made him dismiss it quickly. If there had not arisen in his imagination the probability that his judgment might be more safely determined by a visit to Middlemarch, That was the object which Will stated to himself as a reason for coming down. He had meant to confide in Lydgate and discuss the money question with him, and he had meant to amuse himself for the few evenings of his stay by having a great deal of music and badinage with fair Rosamond without neglecting his friends at Lowick Parsonage. If the parsonage was close to the manor, that was no fault of his. He had neglected the fair brothers before his departure, from a proud resistance to the possible accusation of indirectly seeking interviews with Dorothy, but hunger tames us, and Will had become very hungry for the vision of a certain form and the sound of a certain voice. Nothing had done instead. Not the opera, or the converse of zealous politicians, or the flattering reception in dim corners of his new hand in leading articles. Thus he had come down foreseeing with confidence how almost everything would be in his familiar little world. Fearing, indeed, that there would be no surprises in his visit. But he had found that humdrum world in a terribly dynamic condition, in which even badinage and liarism had turned explosive, and the first day of this visit had become the most fatal epoch of his life. The next morning, he felt so harassed with the nightmare of consequences. He dreaded so much the immediate issues before him that seeing while he breakfasted the arrival of the Riverston coach, he went out hurriedly and took his place on it. That he might be relieved, at least for a day, from the necessity of doing or saying anything in Middlemarch. Will Ladislaw was, in one of those tangled crises which are commoner in experience than one might imagine, from the shallow absoluteness of men's judgments. He had found Lydgate, for whom he had the sincerest respect, under circumstances which claimed his thorough and frankly declared sympathy. And the reason why, in spite of that claim, it would have been better for Will to have avoided all further intimacy, or even contact with Lydgate, was precisely of the kind to make such a course appear impossible. To a creature of Will's susceptible temperament, without any neutral region of indifference in his nature, ready to turn everything that befell him into the collisions of a passionate drama. The revelation that Rosamond had made her happiness in any way dependent on him was a difficulty. Which his outburst of rage towards her had immeasurably increased for him. He hated his own cruelty, and yet he dreaded to show the fullness of his relenting. He must go to her again. The friendship could not be put to a sudden end, and her unhappiness was a power which he dreaded. And all the while there was no more foretaste of enjoyment in the life before him than if his limbs had been lopped off and He was making his fresh start on crutches. In the night, he had debated whether he should not get on the coach, not for Riverston, not for London, leaving a note to Lydgate which would give a makeshift reason for his retreat. But there were strong cords pulling him back from that abrupt departure. The blight on his happiness in thinking of Dorothy. The crushing of that chief hope which had remained in spite of the acknowledged necessity for renunciation. It was too fresh a misery for him to resign himself to it and go straight away into a distance which was also despair. Thus he did nothing more decided than taking the Riverston coach. He came back again by it while it was still daylight having made up his mind that he must go to Lydgate's that evening. The Rubicon, we know, was a very insignificant stream to look at. Its significance lay entirely in certain invisible conditions. Will felt as if he were forced to cross this small boundary ditch. And what he saw beyond it was not empire, but discontented subjection. But it is given to us sometimes, even in our everyday life, to witness the saving influence of a noble nature, the divine efficacy of rescue that may lie in a self-subduing act of fellowship. If Dorothy, after her night's anguish, had not taken that walk to Rosamond, Why? She perhaps would have been a woman who gained a higher character for distinction. But it would certainly not have been as well for those three who were on one hearth in Lydgate's house at half-past seven that evening. Rosamond had been prepared for Will's visit, and she received him with a languid coldness which Lydgate accounted for by her nervous exhaustion, of which he could not suppose that it had any relation to Will. And when he sat in silence, bending over a bit of work, he innocently apologized for her in an indirect way by begging her to lean backward and rest. Will was miserable in the necessity for playing the part of a friend who was making his first appearance in greeting to Rosamond, While his thoughts were busy about her feelings since the scene of yesterday, which seemed still inexorably to enclose them both, like the painful vision of a double madness. It happened that nothing called Lydgate out of the room. But when Rosamond poured out the tea, and Will came near to fetch it. She placed a tiny bit of folded paper in his saucer. He saw it and secured it quickly. But as he went back to his inn, he had no eagerness to unfold the paper. What Rosamond had written to him would probably deepen the painful impressions of the evening. Still he opened it and read it by his bed candle. There were only these few words in her neatly flowing hand. I have told Mrs. Casaubon. she is not under any mistake about you. I told her because she came to see me and was very kind. You will have nothing to reproach me with now. I shall not have made any difference to you. The effect of these words was not quite all gladness. As Will dwelt on them with excited imagination, he felt his cheeks and ears burning at the thought of what had occurred between Dorothy and Rosamond. At the uncertainty how far Dorothy might still feel her dignity wounded in having an explanation of his conduct offered to her. There might still remain in her mind a changed association with him which made an irremediable difference, a lasting flaw. With active fancy, he wrought himself into a state of doubt little more easy than that of the man who has escaped from wreck by night and stands on unknown ground in the darkness until that wretched yesterday except at the moment of vexation long ago in the very same room and in the very same presence all their vision their thought of each other had been as in a world apart, where the sunshine fell on tall white lilies, where no evil lurked and no soul entered. But now, would Dorothy meet him in that world again. Chapter 83 Epigraph And now good morrow to our waking souls which watch not one another out of fear, for love, all love of other, sights, controls, and makes one little room in everywhere. On the second morning after Dorothy's visit to Rosamond, she had had two nights of sound sleep and had not only lost all traces of fatigue, but felt as if she had a great deal of superfluous strength. That is to say, more strength than she could manage to concentrate on any occupation. The day before, she had... Taken long walks outside the grounds and had paid two visits to the parsonage. But she never in her life told anyone the reason why she spent her time in that fruitless manner. And this morning she was rather angry with herself for her childish restlessness. Today was to be spent quite differently. What was there to be done in the village? Oh dear, nothing. Everybody was well and had flannel. Nobody's pig had died. And it was Saturday morning, when there was a general scrubbing of doors and doorstones, and when it was useless to go into the school. But there were various subjects that Dorothy was trying to get clear upon, and she resolved to throw herself energetically into the gravest of all. She sat down in the library before her particular little heap of books on political economy and kindred matters, out of which she was trying to get light as to the best way of spending money so as not to injure one's neighbors, or what comes to the same thing, so as to do them the most good. Here was a weighty subject which, if she could but lay hold of it, would certainly keep her mind steady. Unhappily, her mind slipped off it for a whole hour, and at the end she found herself reading sentences twice over, with an intense consciousness of many things, but not of any one thing contained in the text. This was hopeless. Should she order the carriage and drive to Tipton? No. For some reason or other she preferred staying at Lowick. but her vagrant mind must be reduced to order. There was an art in self-discipline, and she walked round and round the Brown Library considering by what sort of maneuver she could arrest her wandering thoughts. Perhaps a mere task was the best means something to which she must go doggedly. Was there not the geography of Asia Minor, in which her slackness had often been rebuked by Mr. Casalbon? She went to the cabinet of maps and unrolled one. This morning she might make herself finally sure that Paphlagonia was not on the Levantine coast and fix her total darkness about the Calibis firmly on the shores of the Euxine. A map was a fine thing to study when you were disposed to think of something else, being made up of names that would turn into a chime if you went back upon them. Dorothy set earnestly to work bending close to her map and uttering the names in an audible, subdued tone which often got into a chime. She looked amusingly girlish after all her deep experience, nodding her head and marking the names off on her fingers with a little pursing of her lip And now and then breaking off to put her hands on each side of her face and say, Oh dear, oh dear. There was no reason why this should end any more than a merry go round, but it was at last interrupted by the opening of the door and the announcement of Miss Noble. The old lady, whose bonnet hardly reached Dorothy's shoulder, was warmly welcomed. But while her hand was being pressed, she made many of her beaver-like noises, as if she had something difficult to say. Do sit down, said Dorothy, rolling a chair forward. Am I wanted for anything? I shall be so glad if I can do anything. I will not stay, said Miss Noble, putting her hand into her small basket and holding some article inside it nervously. I have left a friend in the churchyard. She lapsed into her inarticulate sounds and unconsciously drew forth the article, which she was. Fingering. It was the tortoise-shell lozenge box, and Dorothy felt the color mounting to her cheeks. Mr. Ladislaw, continued the timid little woman, he fears he has offended you and has begged me to... Ask if you will see him for a few minutes. Dorothy did not answer on the instant. It was crossing her mind that she could not receive him in this library where her husband's prohibition seemed to dwell. She looked towards the window. Could she go out and meet him in the grounds? The sky was heavy, and the trees had begun to shiver as at a coming storm. Besides, she shrank from going out to him. Do see him, Mrs. Casalbin, said Miss Noble pathetically. Else I must go back and say no, and that will hurt him. ''Yes, I will see him,'' said Dorothy. ''Pray tell him to come.'' What else was there to be done? There was nothing that she longed for at that moment except to see Will. The possibility of seeing him had thrust itself insistently between her and every other object. And yet she had a throbbing excitement like an alarm upon her. A sense that she was doing something daringly defiant for his sake. When the little lady had trotted away on her mission, Dorothy stood in the middle of the library with her hands falling, clasped before her, making no attempt to compose herself in an attitude of dignified unconsciousness. What she was least conscious of just then was her own body. She was thinking of what was likely to be in Will's mind and of the hard feelings that others had about him. How could any duty bind her to hardness? Resistance to unjust dispraise had mingled with her feeling for him from the very first. And now, in the rebound of her heart, after her anguish, the resistance was stronger than ever. If I love him too much, it is because he has been used so ill. There was a voice within her saying this to some imagined audience in the library, when the door was opened and she saw Will before her. She did not move, and he came towards her with more doubt and timidity in his face than she had ever seen before. He was in a state of uncertainty which made him afraid lest some look or word of his should condemn him to a new distance from her. And Dorothy was afraid of her own emotion. She looked as if there were a spell upon her keeping her motionless and hindering her from unclasping her hands while some intense, grave yearning was imprisoned within her eyes. Seeing that she did not put out her hand as usual, Will paused a yard from her and said with embarrassment, I am so grateful to you for seeing me. I wanted to see you, said Dorothy, having no other words at command. It did not occur to her to sit down, and Will did not give a cheerful interpretation to this queenly way of receiving him. But he went on to say that he had made up his mind to say... I fear you think me foolish and perhaps wrong for coming back so soon. I have been punished for my impatience. You know, everyone knows now, the painful story about my parentage. I knew of it before I went away, but I always meant to tell you of it. If we ever met again. There was a slight movement in Dorothy, and she unclasped her hands, but immediately folded them over each other. But the affair is matter of gossip now, Will continued. I wished you to know that something connected with it, something which happened before I went away, helped to bring me down here again. At least I thought it excused my coming. It was the idea of getting Bulstrode to apply some money to a public purpose. Some money which he had thought of giving me. Perhaps it is rather to Bulstrode's credit that he privately offered me compensation for an old injury. He offered to give me a good income to make amends but I suppose you know the disagreeable story. Will looked doubtfully at Dorothy, but his manner was gathering some of the defiant courage with which he always thought of this fact in his destiny. He added, You know that it must be altogether painful to me. Yes, yes, I know, said Dorothy hastily. I did not choose to accept an income from such a source. I was sure that you would not think well of me if I did so, said Will. Why should he mind saying anything of that sort to her now? She knew that he had avowed his love for her, I felt that he broke off, nevertheless. You acted as I should have expected you to act, said Dorothy, her face brightening and her head becoming a little more erect on its beautiful stem. I did not believe that you would let any circumstance of my birth create a prejudice in you against me though it was sure to do so in others, said Will, shaking his head backward in his old way and looking with a grave appeal into her eyes. If it were a new hardship, it would be a new reason for me to cling to you, said Dorothy fervidly. Nothing could have changed me, but her heart was swelling. It was difficult to go on. She made a great effort over herself to say, in a low, tremulous voice, but thinking that you were different, not so good as I had believed you to be. You are sure to believe me better than I am in everything but one, said Will, giving way to his own feeling in the evidence of hers. I mean in my truth to you. When I thought you doubted of that, I didn't care about anything that was left. I thought it was all over with me, and there was nothing to try for. Only things to endure. I don't doubt you any longer, said Dorothy, putting out her hand. A vague, fear for him impelling her unutterable affection. He took her hand and raised it to his lips with something like a sob. But he stood with his hat and gloves in the other hand and might have done for the portrait of a royalist. Still, it was difficult to loose the hand and Dorothy Withdrawing it in a confusion that distressed her, looked and moved away. See how dark the clouds have become and how the trees are tossed, she said, walking towards the window, It speaking and moving with only a dim sense of what she was doing. Will followed her at a little distance and leaned against the tall back of a leather chair on which he ventured now to lay his hat and gloves and free himself from the intolerable durance of formality to which he had been for the first time condemned in Dorothy's presence. It must be confessed that he felt very happy at that moment leaning on the chair He was not much afraid of anything that she might feel now. They stood silent, not looking at each other, but looking at the evergreens which were being tossed and were showing the pale underside of their leaves against the blackening sky. Will never enjoyed the prospect of a storm so much, It delivered him from the necessity of going away. Leaves and little branches were hurled about, and the thunder was getting nearer. The light was more and more somber, but there came a flash of lightning which made them start and look at each other, and then smile. Dorothy began to say what she had been thinking of, That was a wrong thing for you to say, that you would have had nothing to try for. If we had lost our own chief good, other people's good would remain, and that is worth trying for. Some can be happy. I seemed to see that more clearly than ever when I was the most wretched. I can hardly think how I could have borne the trouble if that feeling had not come to me to make strength. You have never felt the sort of misery I felt, said Will. The misery of knowing that you must despise me. But I have felt worse. It was worse to think ill. Dorothy had begun impetuously, but broke off. Will colored. He had the sense that whatever she said was uttered in the vision of a fatality that kept them apart. He was silent a moment, and then said passionately, We may at least have the comfort of speaking to each other without disguise since I must go away, since we must always be divided. You may think of me as one on the brink of the grave." While he was speaking, there came a vivid flash of lightning, which lit each of them up for the other, and the light seemed to be the terror of a hopeless love. Dorothy darted instantaneously from the window Will followed her, seizing her hand with a spasmodic movement. And so they stood, with their hands clasped like two children looking out on the storm, while the thunder gave a tremendous crack and roll above them. And the rain began to pour down. Then they turned their faces towards each other with the memory of his last words in them, and they did not loose each other's hands. There is no hope for me, said Will. Even if you loved me as well as I love you, Even if I were everything to you, I shall most likely always be poor. On a sober calculation, one can count on nothing but a creeping lot. It is impossible for us ever to belong to each other. It is perhaps base of me to have asked for a word from you. I meant to go away in silence but I have not been able to do what I meant. Don't be sorry, said Dorothy in her clear, tender tones. I would rather share all the trouble of our parting. Her lips trembled. And so did his. It was never known which lips were the first to move toward the other lips. But they kissed, tremblingly, and then they moved apart. The rain was dashing against the window panes as if an angry spirit were within it, and behind it was the great swoop of the wind. It was one of those moments in which both the busy and the idle pause with a certain awe. Thank you for listening to this reading of George Eliot's Middlemarch. Sweet dreams and farewell from NUMA.